This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I am joined by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool, and he's also the advisor on The Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement Newsletter. Hello, Allison. Hi, bro. How you doing? Just groovy, thanks. Fun day today, because it's an all-Buffett episode. In honor of the upcoming Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting, we're going to play a rousing game of what would Warren Buffett do with the help of a couple foolish analysts. We're also going to answer your question about the right number of stocks to have in your portfolio. And before we're done, we'll learn some money lessons from Buffett, but not the Buffett you're thinking of. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's time for Answers Answers, and we have some special guests in the studio today. They are... Brendan Matthews and Micah Robinson. Hey there, howdy. And you guys are analysts here at The Motley Fool. Yep, indeedio. How long have you guys been at The Motley Fool? I just had my three-year full anniversary. Four years. Congratulations. Nice, congratulations. Well, you guys are in here to talk about all things Buffett, but first, we're gonna ask you to maybe help out on answering a listener question. And the question comes from Rob. Rob writes, I always hear varying strategies as to how many positions you should have in your portfolio, but I have a long-term concern that I will dilute my portfolio as new opportunities present themselves. Let's say that 10 positions make sense. Should I implement a plan where I sell off my positions in my underperforming stocks in order to take advantage of new opportunities presented in the market? In doing so, I would create a rule where I never sell a position in a stock in less than three years. Or do I ignore the number of positions in my portfolio and take advantage of opportunities as they are presented and make sense? My fear is that 10 years from now, I look at my portfolio and I have 30 positions and am overextended. Ugh. What number is the right number of stocks, bro? Well, unfortunately for you, Allison, and for Rob, there is no right answer. And if you look at, at academic studies, or even if you talk to your average Motley Fool analyst, you will not get the same answer. Um, if you look at some of the earlier studies, even Benjamin Graham in, in Security Analysis, I think it was, or the Intelligent Investor, said maybe 10 to 30 stocks. There have been other studies that came and, and said you could own as few as maybe 8 to 18 stocks. But since then, a lot of those studies have been sort of undermined and refuted where people think, no, it has to be 100, 200, 300 stocks. Oof, that's a lot of individual stocks to monitor. Exactly. So whenever you're making a decision, there's the balance between being sufficiently diversified, but also not owning so many companies that you can't stay on top of them. So as I said, not even all the Motley Fool analysts agree on this number. I will turn to Micah and Brendan and say, guys, what do you think? Uh, The number 30, that doesn't bother me as much. I think if you're finding good opportunities that you like, I think you're better off putting new money towards those and worrying less about the number of total positions that you have. At Stock Advisor, which Micah and I both work on, we don't give a lot of portfolio guidance, but one thing we say is we want people to own at least 15 stocks. So 15 is the minimum, there's no upper limit. So I think there's no problem with owning a lot of different stocks. Uh, Rob talks about having 30 positions and being overextended. I don't think you can really be overextended, especially if there's smaller positions. People, I think, overrate the idea of selling, trading, monitoring. I think really sometimes the best thing to do is just put companies in there, pay your money and see see how they do, let, them, let, let the business play out. That's so I, I favor owning more stocks. Yeah. Yeah. And he talks about also selling off his underperforming stocks. But if we did that here at the Motley Fool, we'd have, we would have sold, you know, Amazon at ten dollars. Mm-hmm. We would have sold Priceline at two dollars. You know, there's many times where these stocks underperform in the short term, but in the long run, they just soar. So for David Gardner's performance on Stock Advisor, which is 
hugely outperformed the market for over a decade. I He asked me to run the numbers on how the performance would have been if they had never sold. And it actually would have been even better than his outstanding performance now. So uh, we, we tend to favor not selling. A couple other things to think about is that it's not just a number of stocks, but diversification across different types of stocks. So you mm-hmm. can own 100 stocks, but if they're all in the same sector, you're not actually all that diversified. Um, and I also as a rule of thumb, just say you shouldn't have more than 5% of your assets in one stock. And especially if you work for that company or you live in an area that really relies on that one company. You think of like Detroit and these places that once the industry went down, so did home prices and everything like that. So you look at your entire, your human capital as well as your real estate, and factor that into your portfolio as well. All right. So, bottom line 30 positions, you're not going to be overextended. Don't worry about it. Yeah? Indeed, yep. I agree. agree. It turns out we do agree. That's right. (laughs) We solved this problem. We did. Warren Buffett is famous for having the diet of a 12-year-old, playing the ukulele, and also being the greatest investor, businessman, and philanthropist in the world. He's a member of the Tres Comas Club, worth $66.7 billion billion. dollars. So the annual Warren Buffett Fest, known as the Berkshire Hathaway Shareholder Meeting, is this weekend. A day-long event is also known as the Woodstock of Capitalism, and it attracts 40,000 people to Omaha every year. So today, we've enlisted the help of Brennan and Micah to play a little game we call, What Would Warren Buffett Do? with a couple of made-up scenarios. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. So, bro... You and Brendan have both been to the shareholders meeting in the past. Is it really like the Woodstock of capitalism? Because that calls to mind lots of like LSD and <laughs> topless women and you know babies. I, if that is going on, I went to the wrong area of Omaha because I did not see that. I should say I went in 2009, right in the teeth of the Great Recession, so people weren't, weren't as buoyant as probably as some other annual meetings. But when I went, there were still over 30,000 people there. You couldn't if you showed up too late. You couldn't get a seat in the arena. Uh, the place the is arena. just packed. It's an arena. It's an arena. They it's rent in the out. Cent- it's in the CenturyLink Center, um, and each year it keeps getting bigger. They've continually sold out not only the arena. They have uh, rooms where they uh, simulcast in both the arena and the Hilton near nearby. They sold all of that out. It's gotten so ridiculously huge that uh, Buffett has actually agreed to stream it on Yahoo Finance this year, which is something he's never done in the past. Um, it's also like tons of events going around. Like It's not just, we're all going to sit, we're going to talk about how the company did. There's right. newspaper throwing contests, everyone's eating dilly bars. There's, and a, hu- there's a huge uh, show floor where you can buy products from all of um, the different Berkshire subsidiaries. You can sign up for a NetJets membership if you, <laughs> if you have the money. Convenient. You can, you can buy uh, Justin Boots. Um, you can buy Hanes underwear. Uh, you can buy a baseball that says Berkshire Hathaway on it. There's also a 5K. Our own Matt Koppenhafer uh, finished, uh, I think, like eighth or something. Oh, which really? Was, which was a pretty good uh, score. Analyst here. I, I, I tried to give Ted Wechsler a, a high five, and he <laughs> he looked at he he refused to do it. Uh, <laughs> did he just leave you hanging, or did yeah, he not he even see you? Hang. He left no, me No, but did he like Ted. purposely like you put yes. up your hand and he, he was said, like, he said, nope. this is a dirty, sweaty looking, unwashed person. I'm not gonna. To touch his hand. <laughs> he was right. It's like, it's like, a, it's like the, the county fair for capitalists, and there are events going on the all over. The county fair for capitalists. All over for Omaha, all kinds of things. The Fruit of the Loom guys are walking around in their costumes. It's crazy. 
aside from the county fair aspects of it, why is this such a big deal for shareholders? Well, for several hours, Warren Buffett and his six co-chair. Hours. Six hours. Six hours. Warren Buffett and his co-chair. And Warren Buffett is 85. Charlie Munger, his co-chairman, is 92. And they sit up there and take questions. Um, they take questions from the audience for six hours. With a, with a short lunch break, but six hours, and they take them totally fresh, and they respond um, without any preparation. Right. Um, and there's very minimal amount of screening. A lot of it is from journalists, but they also take uh, questions from the audience as well. And some of it can get very nitty gritty into the companies owned by Berkshire, and some of it is like you know, eleven year old saying like, "What should I do to be a successful investor?" Aww. Yeah, it's very cute, even though it gets asked the same time every year. So everyone, <laughs> everyone else rolls their eyes, except for that kid's parents. Yeah, so proud. <laughs> Little Jamie's gonna be the next Warren Buffett. All right, uh, has it fool ever had a question answered by Warren Buffett at the meeting? Uh, well, the aforementioned Matt. Koppenhafer, the full employee, actually asked him uh, on the show floor about uh, German stocks. Uh-huh. Matt is running our fool.de business, um, and he just got up there and stuck his face in there with all the uh, <laughs> that's typical all, Matt all with Becky Quick oh, and, and those guys right. and asked yeah. him about German stocks. And Buffett actually, I think, had a pretty good answer to it. The year I went, there was a separate Q and A with journalists, mm-hmm. of which I was one. So I have asked a question. Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. You did. What did you ask them? I did. We asked the full. We we knew we had one question. We asked the full community to offer suggestions and vote on it. And it was it, since it was in the Great Recession, it was what can we do to prevent these types of things in the future? Do we need more regulation? Who fell down? That type of thing. And what did and he th- say? Their answer was basically bad people are going to do bad things. Um, you can do some regulations and change some things about the risks the banks take. But in the end, you're always going to have these types of bubbles bursting. Mm-hmm. Kind of a softball question, I guess. <laughs> sort of. Yeah. <laughs> so it's time to play What Would Warren Buffett Do? And what we have here is some scenarios. If you can imagine us standing up at the Berkshire Hathaway meeting and saying, Mr. Buffett, here's a situation. How would you act? And then we get his answer. But we don't have Warren Buffett here. Instead, we have Brendan and Micah, which is totally cool. That's fine. Just as good, right? Just yeah. as good. The non-union uh, equivalent. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Who's more the Buffett and who's more the Munger between you? Uh, I guess I'm older, so I'm the Munger. Yeah, I guess. And you're yeah. you're a little more curmudgeonly. I am. Yeah, I appreciate that. Charlie, Charlie <laughs> Munger is a famed curmudgeon, but they're both very witty, um, smart guys. So you know. We're talking, about you, you, we're talking about YouTube, by the way. Oh, damn, Daniel. <laughs> Thank you. This is what happens when you come on our show. You get tons of praise because we want you to come back. I don't know. Maybe we don't want you to come back. Let's see how this goes. Uh, I just want to thank Matt Kopenheffer and Joe Mager. There are a couple analysts here at The Fool. One is based in Australia and one is based in Germany. They help draft these questions for us. So thanks, Joe and Matt. All right. First scenario, Carol Loomis, a veteran Fortune Magazine business journalist who also edits Buffett's famed annual letter to shareholders, and Becky Quick, his favorite CNBC anchor, end up embroiled in a vicious hip-hop style feud and insist that Warren pick a side. Who does he back? Carol or Becky? So I'm going, for two reasons, I'm going with Carol Loomis. So number one, she edits his annual letter, which is read by thousands and thousands of people. And if he lost that, maybe there's a a new voice coming through the annual letter. Maybe they don't Mm. read as well. Good point. Um, But the second reason is Buffett has said publicly that she's just been a fantastic business journalist her entire career. 
and she wrote a book or I guess put together a book called Tap Dancing to Work which is a collection of fortune articles that were written since I think 1967 and it's a fantastic read especially if you don't know a whole lot about Warren Buffett Uh, but then also she mixes in some great pieces that Buffett himself wrote which are very educational so I'll also say Carol Loomis I think what he views these annual letters of which she's the editor as his legacy and he he puts um, some time into each of those letters to teach a, a lesson in addition to actually updating people on the um, Berkshire business and I think uh, her partnership with him in essentially cementing his legacy with these letters is extremely important. I I think some people have always hoped Buffett would write a book uh, similar to his mentor Ben Graham but I think if you pull together everything that he's written from the partnership to, to, to Berkshire, he's probably brought forth more than his mentor before him has, uh, which uh, is is very impressive, and Carol Loomis has had a lot to do with that. Yeah, no dis- disrespect to Becky Quick, but Carol Loomis is solid. I mean, she retired two years ago at age 85. She started at Fortune back in 1954, was a part of the Fortune 500. She first mentioned Buffett in an article in 1966 in, in which she coined the term hedge fund. Um, oh, she she demurs a little bit about that. I listened to an interview with her from a year ago. She's like, well, I'm not sure it was me. It could have been me. I don't know. But did she, did she misspell his name in that? Yes. Yeah, yeah. She she just mentions Buffet. the Buffett <laughs> yeah. partnership, and it's yeah, one team. But then her husband met her, met Warren Buffett, and then they got together, uh, enjoyed each other's company. She bought stock in Berkshire Hathaway, and at her lowest cost basis is 173 bucks a share. You know, now it's 216 thousand dollars that's a pretty good return wow um and she hasn't sold any of it wow yeah next question warren is the captain of a boat that's rapidly sinking there's a small raft that could be used to rescue only a fraction of the people and the stuff on board on the boat is ajit jain he's the president of berkshire hathaway's insurance group and a potential successor charlie munger aforementioned lifelong business partner for the most part, and all-around buddy. Tony Nicely, the Geico CEO. There's also a cooler full of cherry Coke. Not only does Warren Buffett own 400 million of the company's shares, he drinks at least five 12-ounce servings of cherry Coke a day. Oh my gosh, does he still have his original teeth? We'll get to that. Also on board is a BNSF model train set and conductor's hat, and an original signed copy of Ben Graham's security analysis. What does Captain Warren do? Well, I think, first of all, he saves Ajit Jain, for sure. because I know that because I think Warren has probably said that in the past. Ajit is really one of the most valuable people at the company. But I also think he'd save the model train set. So, <laughs> there's, there's a funny story about Warren Buffett in the 1960s. He, uh, he'd always dreamed of having a, a train, in a, basically, in his house, like a model train set. And Omaha is a, a famous sort of built up as sort of a train junction. And so what he did is he got a partner. I think the guy's name was Bill Engel. Uh, and he was a partner in the sense that he built it all for Warren uh, in exchange for Warren claiming he's a partner. Then he tried to sell a 50% interest in the train set on the third floor of his own house to, I think, one of his other business partners who uh, who declined that offer to, to pay for half of it. But Warren said, hey, come on, you can come over and use it whenever you want. And the guy said, I'm not paying for a train set in your house. And this was after Warren had, uh, I think he had made a couple hundred thousand dollars that year and, and, and owned 13% of his, his partnership. So he was doing pretty well, but he was, 
He's also kind of doing a little Tom Sawyering of his friends. <laughs> That's pretty funny. By the way, I did find a an original edition of Security Analysis on eBay for sixteen thousand five hundred dollars, just in case you're curious how much that's worth. Wow. And it's not signed by Benjamin Graham, oh, okay. hmm. so that's not a cheap book. No. All right, Micah, what do you think Captain Buffett does? So, <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm going to second that he says Ajit Jain for basically the same reasons. He's he's said, I think it, it was in the 2014 letter that Buffett said uh, Ajit was a, a fully capable successor for him. Uh, he's also responsible for the most insurance float, which is a huge uh, driving force for, for Berkshire Hathaway. Buffett loves making money. He needs that float, and he needs someone to manage it, so that's why I'm going with Ajit. I also think that he would take the cooler full of cherry coke because as you mentioned as much as he takes in every day i think that if he didn't he might actually die i think this is <laughs> go through withdrawal and start eating people yeah i think we exactly so i think this is uh, i mean he, he hopefully he would take that for humanity's sake because if he doesn't he's he's a goner yeah and since you mentioned insurance float this is a key part of berkshire hathaway so when people pay their insurance premiums the insurance company keeps the money until they need to pay something out. In the meantime, the company invests it. And that's sort mm-hmm. of, to a certain degree, that was the whole business model behind Absolutely. Berkshire Hathaway. So being able to to invest this float is key to his success. And they're looking for someone who can take over for Warren, who, as we said earlier, is already 85. I'd also add just a little bit of uh, trivia, since I'm pointing out how cheap Warren Buffett is. Before he bought shares of Coca-Cola and has become sort of their pseudo-spokesperson, he was actually a Pepsi drinker. He would buy Pepsi in the grocery store because it was cheaper, and then he would add uh, cherry flavoring (laughs) because it was just more economical than actually paying for cherry Coke. You buy Pepsi and add cherry flavoring. It's kind of per sip cost. It's it's a little bit. It's a little bit of a uh, skeleton in his closet, and maybe that's one of the reasons Alice Schroeder (laughs) is uh, not on good terms with him. She's revealed these kind of things, and I I really focus on repeating them. (laughs) Well, as we've mentioned in a previous episode, Warren Buffett's license plate used to be thrifty. Uh, and he lives in the same house he bought in the 50s for $31,000. There have been some security upgrades since then. But yeah. I've walked by. It's just a normal, very nice neighborhood in Omaha. And you can just walk by. I was walking by. His wife walked out. I didn't have the guts to wave. But, you know, it's just a normal guy. Worth billions of dollars. <laughs> yeah. Next one. 3G Capital, the notoriously aggressive and cutthroat private equity firm that has been praised by Buffett despite his more laissez-faire style, launches a hostile bid for his beloved Coca-Cola. So, I'm going to say that Buffett actually backs 3G for a couple reasons. So, number one, I think 3G is a phenomenal outfit, a phenomenal leadership team. He's already partnered with them uh, at Kraft Heinz. Uh, when you look at the assets that Coca-Cola has, they have vast distribution assets. I think 3G, just because they are a top management team, could probably do more with that. This and, is all totally hypothetical, but you're making it sound like you look like you actually like thought about this, and you're like, wait a second, what could 3G Capital do with Coca-Cola? Yeah, absolutely, I have. <laughs> um, and then also there was, I think it was maybe two years ago when there was some slight disagreement that uh, Buffett had with uh, some comp discussions at Coca-Cola, specifically with equity options. So there's been, though it's a very long-term uh, relationship that he has with uh, Coca-Cola, I could see him backing 3G here, which would be a diversion from what he has historically always done. So I, I agree with uh, both of your, your premise that, number one, um, Buffett really respects 3G, and I also agree that they would do a tremendous job if they were running Coca-Cola. Uh, they're very sharp operators. 
uh, probably sharper than um, Howard Buffett, Warren's son, who's on the board of Coca-Cola, who I, I understand is a good farmer, but I don't, yes, he is. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if he has that much business qualifications, but I don't think Buffett would support a hostile deal. He's come out and said he doesn't support hostile deals. And one of the things Warren has sort of Tom Sawyer people into again is selling him businesses at lower rates than they could get from the highest bidder because he's created this, what he describes as sort of uh, a museum and uh, where he'll take in your, your family business and he won't uh, disrupt anything, he won't lay off the employees, he'll essentially give you the money but still uh, allow you to retain the legacy of your family, which is often a business. And I think that's, he, he describes it in um, very optimistic terms, but essentially it's allowed him to do special deals. Mm. And he would wanna maintain that. That's one of the things that really has generated a lot of value at Berkshire, and I think will continue to generate value going forward. I actually don't even know what it means when there is a hostile takeover. It's basically some other group buying up the company, accumulating shares or some other controlling interest, but the management of the company not agreeing with it. Because when you have the takeover, what often happens, and this is what 3G has done, is they come in and they will clean house, whether it's management or the employees. Um, they file something that I think is called zero-based budgeting or something mm -hmm. like that, whereas the typical company is like, well, we gave this department this amount of money, let's just give them, give them that amount again this year, but they start every year at zero. Like, you got to justify the amount that we are going to give you as a department. Um, and it's led to a lot of cost cutting. It makes the, the company more profitable, but it can be very disruptive to the people who work there. Yeah, and 3G, uh, I think probably the most ho or, uh, the most famous hostile takeover that they've uh, executed was the Anheuser-Busch purchase back in 2008. Uh, there's a really good book out there called Dethroning the King that kind of expands on the Anheuser-Busch side of things, but also a little bit on the 3G. But then there's a 3G book called Dream Big that kind of explains their process and their history. And it is, um, though not entirely popular, uh, it's very, very effective, and um, it's a great read. Also, a lot of talk about spearfishing. Spearfishing yes. is a big part of the uh, 3G process. Uh, did you guys have a bet about trying to get the word spearfishing into the episode? <laughs> no, it's something that they do. It is. It's, they what do. does that mean? Yeah. What? They go out so like they they're, they're like the, Brazilians. the employees who are laid off they're, are thrown into the water. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> they, they're Brazilians. They they go off the coast into the Atlantic Ocean. They dive down very deep and they shoot fish with spears. And I guess there's a lot of analogies for how that works for business. And then also if you haven't really been spear fishing with a person, you don't really know if they'll they'll you know, they can hold up their end of the bargain running a, a beer company, I guess. Yeah, it's true. It's in the book. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that does it for all of the what would Warren Buffett do. Um, I don't think I can. I think I can declare everyone a winner. I guess everyone wins Yay. until these scenarios actually happen, and Warren Buffett does make a decision. We'll never know. But before we let you guys go, the Berkshire Hathaway meeting again is happening this weekend. What? What's something that our listeners could say? to sound as intelligent as possible should the topic of Warren Buffett or the meeting come up. Hmm. Just 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 say the word deferred tax assets a lot and say <laughs> say deferred tax asset really functions as float. And and just just say that. <laughs> and then and just take no, a long no, nobody, sip. nobody will nobody will even know what you're talking about, so they'll be too intimidated to ask a follow up. 
I'm impressed already. That's a good one. Yeah. That's, wow. Yeah. Um, the, uh, so I was going to say float, but now I'll just say growth and uh, per share book value. Yeah? yeah. Just, you're just going like, to, basically, just, you're just saying drop the mic comments. Just say it and walk away. Float, well, but just if anybody away. says book value, just, just kind of eyeball them and say, you mean book value per share, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know what it means, but it sounds funny. <laughs> I don't know. I think I'd bring up the ukulele. There's also I, That's probably more in my wheelhouse of something I could talk about. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for channeling your inner Warren Buffett for our episode of What Would Warren Buffett Do? Please come back again sometime. Sure thing. Again, we'll this has been Brendan Matthews and Micah Robinson, Foolish Analysts here. time for some money lessons that we can all learn from Buffett. Jimmy Buffett, that is. Yes, Mr. Margaritaville himself is no slouch at making money. His net worth is $450 million, and that's more than Beyonce. That's amazing. Beyonce! When was the last Beyond time you Beyonce. even heard one of his songs on the radio? It's been a while. Doesn't matter, because he found other ways to make money, which we're going to learn about. And the person we brought in the studio to help uh, share these lessons is Mark Kennedy. You're a back-end developer at The Fool? Or what would you, what would you say you do here? Just an all-around software developer at The Fool. Okay, software developer here at The Motley Fool. And also, do, do I call you a parrot head or just a, a fan of, of I've been called Jimmy a parrot head yeah. in the past. I'm a bit lapsed. I used to be a member of the Church of Buffett Orthodox. <laughs> <laughs> um, but again, totally lapsed on that. But uh, you know, still, I have history. Yeah. So you actually lis- listen to this is how this is how I pictured it. You listen to Margaritaville, and you're like, yes, I want to live that song. You hopped in a VW van, you drove down to the Keys, and you lived there for some time. Somewhat like that, not exactly, but yeah, I lived in the Keys for a good part of my twenties. And I can honestly say that I would never would have moved to the Keys if I hadn't been a Jimmy Buffett fan first. And that's not a very uncommon story that you hear down there. So, do you have a tattoo? I have no a Mexican tattoos. cutie. No, I do not. No, no. It's too bad. Yeah, there's so. still time. You got real estate there. You could work with. All right. So the first lesson you're here to share is that it's better to be smart than talented. Yeah, so there's this story about Jimmy Buffett, and people when they when they knock on Jimmy Buffett for his music, they say, well, you know, he's not a very talented singer, and he's not a very talented guitarist, and those things are true. And there's a story that, you know, back in the day, he was walking down uh, the streets in Key West, and there was a guy noodling on a guitar on the street corner, and Jimmy asked if he could, you know, pick it up and play it, and so he picked it up and started playing it, and after a few minutes or whatever, the guy took it back and said, oh man, you're no you're no player. And Jimmy's, you know, retort was, "Yeah, I'm not much of a guitar player." He says, "But I'm a poet. And I'm a businessman, and those things will take me far." <laughs> wow, and, uh, love that! I'm yeah. gonna get that. I'm gonna get that tattooed on me. <laughs> so, you know, I think with Jimmy Buffett, he's he's not a great uh, guitarist and he's not a great singer, but he's a good storyteller and he's a very savvy businessman. Um, he he said in the past that the reason that he became savvy about the music business in particular is he used to be a writer for Billboard magazine before he had a music career. So he realized that the music business was not structured to really benefit the musician at all. So he always had in the back of his head that he needed to have a plan B of some sort. uh, And he was kind of aware that business might be the way for him to do that. Now he got a 
little bit lucky with uh, you know, Margaritaville. It was a popular song. I think it rose to number eight on the charts in 1977. <laughs> but uh, you know, one big song isn't going to you know give you a, a life of uh, leisure. No. Um, and he hasn't had a life of leisure, but he's had a lot of, a life of a lot of hard work and and business acumen. So. We should add here, by the way, that it used to be sort of a running joke with Warren Buffett and Jimmy Buffett that they were related. They did they did get the genetic test done, and unfortunately, no, they are not related. Womp womp. All right, the second lesson we can learn from Jimmy Buffett is that if you can join him, beat him. Yeah, so this story, uh, well, there's several examples of this. For So, you know, he was down in Key West in the 80s, and, you know, Key West was kind of taken off as a tourist destination. And he started noticing that, uh, first of all, his career wasn't doing great in the mid 80s. Um, and he started noticing all these people wearing basically knockoff Jimmy Buffett t-shirts, you know, misspelling his name, Jimmy Buffet. <laughs> um, and so he and a buddy decided they were going to open a t-shirt shop in Key West. So this was the first example where he kind of moved into a market that was already there and realized that it was all about him, and he just took it over. And it became the most profitable t-shirt shop in the Keys, or in the you know, in Key West. And that, of course, led to the Margaritaville cafes and everything else. Similar example is uh, in the 80s, he started becoming sponsored. All of his tours were sponsored by Corona, Corona Extra, because, you know, they had kind of the tropical lifestyle thing. And so did he. And uh, it was a great pairing until at some point Jimmy realized, well, this was kind of all about him. It was more Jimmy Buffett than Corona. And so he partnered with Anheuser-Busch InBev to uh, start Land Shark Beer. And Corona is no longer the sponsor of Jimmy Buffett <laughs> concerts. It's Land Shark Beer and Margaritaville tequila and rum and those sorts of things. So uh, he likes to he recognizes where he is the value added and he tries to you know basically get all the value that comes from that. So the third and final lesson that we can learn from Jimmy Buffett is that you should diversify. Everything that can have a margarita on it should have a margarita on it. Yeah, I mean, Margaritaville Holdings or whatever the actual company's name is, uh, there's there's no end to the products that are that are branded this way. So you have you know Margaritaville cafes and restaurants. You have Cheeseburger and Paradise restaurants, which is a separate thing. I mean, if you if you wanted to, you could you know you could. You can eat Margaritaville food. You can drink Margaritaville drinks. You can wear Margaritaville clothes. You can furnish your house in Margaritaville furnishings. You can vacation at Margaritaville hotels, restaurants, and casinos. Um, he has Margaritaville radio on XM Satellite Radio. He has Margaritaville TV on the internet. Uh, and I just saw that they're going to, there's going to be a Margaritaville mobile game coming out. This <laughs> of course, summer. of oh course, God. there so, is. Of course. Yeah, and that's just the ones that I can think of off the top. Of Do my you head. just try to get as drunk as possible and then not sunburned or something like that? I don't know. I don't we'll know. find out Fun this game. summer. Yeah. yeah. Hey, um, parents, are you looking for a good children's book? Right. Well, <laughs> it exists. Yes. You didn't what? It? He's yes. got a child, a Margaritaville. Yes. Children's well, it's book? not Margaritaville. But he wrote a children's he book. He wrote two children's books. He's also a best-selling author. He's one of only eight authors to have the number one bestseller on the New York Times, both fiction and nonfiction list. Two of those other people were, well, three of them. Let's see, there was uh, uh, Ernest Hemingway, Dr. Seuss, and John Steinbeck. So, <laughs> wow. I often throw all those folks there together. There are others, but I'm not sure. <laughs> so, those yeah. four walk into a bar. Yeah. A Margaritaville. Uh, there you go. Well, where did Hemingway live? Key West. There yes. you go. Yeah. My dad was a finalist in that Ernest Hemingway oh, really? lookalike contest one year. Yeah. That's a big status. Oh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> I'm a big deal. <laughs> all right. So, I have both of those books, by the way, Allison, if you want to read them to Hannah. Do you really? Are they good? Trouble Dolls and Jolly Mon. Yeah, they're not bad, actually. Yeah. Okay, all right. Both based on songs, I believe. Ah, 
about see. Trouble Dolls. Jolly Mon is definitely based on the song, and it has a song in the back and everything. So. Yeah. Tie-ins. Right? It's all about, and then it, it Get ends. Get the kids hooked on yeah, <laughs> Jimmy <laughs> Buffett early. Early. And now that the story's done, go talk to your mommy and daddy about taking you to Cheeseburger in Paradise. <laughs> so, yeah, so Jimmy Buffett as a brand, Jimmy Buffett as a musician, eh, okay, yeah, you, you enjoy it. Doesn't, maybe it doesn't resonate with me, but whatever, that's cool. But <laughs> I cannot deny Jimmy Buffett as a brand and a lifestyle. Oh, yeah. And even Warren Buffett, so they are friends, may not, may not be relations, but they're friends. And Warren Buffett in the New York Times a while ago said that he equated the Jimmy Buffett brand with Coke and that it crosses all sorts of demographics. It's not very focused. And he sees it as just as strong a brand in a lot of ways as Coke. Um, he even asked in, that, or asked in that interview if Jimmy Buffett would put Warren Buffett in his will because, you know, he's a big fan of his uh, business acumen. So. Aww, <laughs> that's cute. Mark, thank you for coming and sharing. Like, we could not have done this segment without you because we basically came up with the idea and we're like, oh, now we got to figure this out. Oh, and you fun. made it easy for me. Yeah, I mean, every time I hear about Warren Buffett, I think of Jimmy. So, yeah. <laughs> fins up. Fins up. Sandy footed hippies here. What's mine is mine. That's the show, but we've got big news this week. You can now listen to Motley Fool Answers and all the other Motley Fool podcasts in three, three new places. Place number one, if you've got an iPhone or an iPad, you can download the new Motley Fool app. Just go to app.fool.com. The app is free. You can listen to all of the shows, read articles from fool.com, and access any foolish services that you're subscribed to. And you can also listen on Spotify, that's number two, and Google Play. That's the third new place that we are airing. So we're everywhere. Just like Jimmy Buffett. Just like Jimmy Buffett. Just like Jimmy Buffett. We need to start a restaurant chain. Do you think we could do that? I think that was an idea once. Yeah, we had some crazy ideas in the like early it. days. Are you are you serious? There oh, yeah. was an idea well, to have a Molly Full restaurant. We were definitely going to have a storefront. Yeah, I yeah. Think it was coffee related. Probably an internet cafe. Yeah, something like that. That's the show. It is edited swimmingly by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. Uh, for Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Yeah.